What's up, Team Whiteman? This is Chaplain Graham Bailey with Practicing the Pillars podcast, where every airman is a leader. Lead yourself first, and others will line up to follow. How's it going, everybody out there in podcast land? We are joined today by with some very special people. We've got Task Force True North Coordinator, Mrs. Morgan Hildebrand. Hello. The 509th Bomb Wing Master Resilience Trainer, Tech Sergeant Kimberly Desaluce. Hi. And the 509th Bomb Wing VPI Violence Prevention Integrator, Mr. Jeff Huffman. Hello, everyone. So just so everybody knows, violence prevention integrator does not actually mean integrating violence into your life. Uh, it actually means integrating prevention into your life. Right, Jeff? That's correct. All prevention right. is the key. Prevention is the key. Well, we're really excited to have you with us today and to hear your story about how you got into uh, the work of violence prevention. And I have to be honest with you, Jeff, uh, when I when I see you, you don't actually fit the mold or the stereotype. And I confess stereotypes are bad, uh, but we all have them. Uh, so you don't actually fit the mold or the stereotype that I have for what a VPI looks like or acts like, uh, which is why I wanted you to come in and share with us. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this work and, uh, and what it means to you? Sure. Um, well, you know, going back to birth. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I was. Uh, it was a cold, dark night. <laughs> it was a cold, dark night. Twenty-five. So, so I joined the Air Force right out of high school. Uh, like many of you out there listening today, that I, was last century. I, yeah, last century. Back in the musket <laughs> days, you know, yeah. uh, before uh, automatic weapons. Uh, anyway, um, back then, I I knew that I was sort of college material. Didn't know what. I was going to do with that and didn't have the means to cover that. So I said, Hey, there's a way join the air force. I did that. Got my college degree, uh, was opportunity. There was an opportunity to leave the air force and, um, with the buyouts. So the first reduction in force, which is in the uh, mid to late nineties. So I jumped out and stayed here in this community. And so we've been, my wife and I, my, my family have been in this community since 92 and, um, you know, kind of made uh, Missouri and this area our home. Anyway, so fast forward to my children are all grown and they're uh, off doing their own things. My oldest is off to college. And uh, so, you know, as a military guy, and well, just a man in general, and you're, and you're thinking about your family, your primary role is to protect and defend your family and to make sure that you make life uh as comfortable for them as possible. And I think that's just parenting 101. You just want to, no matter if you're a part of a family parenting unit or a single um, parent, your primary goal is to take care of your kids. And so that's what I was about. And that's what I thought I was doing. And my daughter goes off to college and she's successfully completes three years of college. She's in her final year, second semester of her final year. So she's about to embark on student teaching. She's a special ed teacher in Liberty, Missouri right now. Anyway, she's in her final semester of college and uh, she's engaged to be married. And we think everything is working out just like 
uh, it should in America, right? Uh, they're going to get married, have grandkids, and we're going to be happy, happy uh, grandparents. Well, um, that's not exactly what happened. So she, um, just to make it quick and not with all the details, she was raped uh, wow. in college, um, her final semester of her senior year. Uh, that rape, uh, to, I, I took that very hard. Uh, she was off to college. There was nothing really I could do, but I carried a lot of guilt that I wasn't there, that I wasn't able to protect and defend her and keep her from harm. And, um, but then as uh, she started to tell us the details of what happened and everything, then, uh, and all my vic- victim advocate friends out there will, will cringe when they hear this, but uh, I did absolutely everything that you shouldn't do. Uh, as far as a victim advocate, but also as a parent, I blamed my daughter for all kinds of things. Uh, uh, like, why were you out so late? Why were you drinking? Why, you know, like, like she had some control over what happened to her. And so I made all these mistakes, uh, as a, as a parent and as a victim advocate. Well, anyway, that, uh, that was hard for me to, to carry. And, uh, so, you were not a victim advocate at this time. No, you I was. Were, I was trying to be a dad. Yeah, a dad selling and insurance. Yeah, I was. Yeah, at this time, I I'd gotten out of the uh, air force, and I was I was a commercial insurance salesman. So, I I didn't know what I know now, yeah. and it, but um, but I know that because of what I know now, I know I did everything wrong. Well, um, the 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 fact that she got raped. Um, changed all of our lives. It's not, it's not just one victim in this scenario. Uh, obviously, she's the victim. Uh, but I have a granddaughter now who is a product of that rape. And, and at some point in her life, she's going to have to deal with this knowledge. Uh, she's not old enough to handle that yet. But we've talked about it uh, with, when I say we, my, my daughter and I and, and her husband and my wife and the four adults in the scenario have talked about how we're going to approach that when it happens. So we've got a granddaughter who's going to be impacted by this. We've got a daughter. We've got a son-in-law who is impacted by this, obviously. So uh, when we think about uh, perpetration of rape, it has multiple uh, victims. Uh, and obviously the most uh, critically impacted is the, per, the person who was perpetrated against. And, and my daughter has to carry that burden the rest of her life. Uh, I have to carry the guilt of not being there to protect her the rest of my life. So why, to, to get to your question, uh, why am I the non-traditional, you know, like the old gray hair white dude that's in, you know, that's working in this. You don't have that much hair, actually, Jeff. Well, oh, yeah, like that's, that's old, true. Bald. Old, old, bald, gray hair, white dude. Yeah, that's even better. <laughs> For those out in uh, <laughs> podcast land that can't see. Chaplin's uh, rolling hard on you today, man. I know, oh. I know. <laughs> but, but you know, the truth is the truth. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> I accept it. I embrace it. No, um, the reality is, uh, you know, See, you got me off track. I was, I was going so sorry. (laughs) No, I, I really don't fit the mold, but, but what happened in my life, what changed, what the, the thing, the moment that changed it is when I looked in my daughter's eyes and I saw the pain that I, I caused on top of the pain that she was already experiencing. It made me realize that I needed 
to be a better person. I needed to be a better father. I needed to be a better um, community member. And so I, I changed careers right then and there. I started working at the university and the violence at uh, the University of Central Missouri, you know, our neighbor right down to the, the uh, west. And I, start, I took a job in the violence and prevention office over there. And again, my knowledge base was zero. Uh, and so I had to... I had to get myself up and running really, really quickly. And so um, I read everything that I could read. I attended every course that I could. And so fast forward, that event happened 12 years ago. And uh, I've been working toward and trying to become uh, a prevention specialist for the primary reason to keep this from happening to somebody else. Uh, There were people... Uh, at the location where, where my daughter was, was victimized, that could have prevented it. And I'm not blaming them. They didn't have the, schools, the skills or the tools to prevent it. But I don't want anyone to be in a position where they could help but don't know how to help yeah. and then don't help because we can do a lot if we just think about it. So you mentioned a couple of things um, that, that stuck out to me, and one of those things was – that you confess that you don't quote fit the mold, um, and and I think that gets to my you know initial question about stereotypes and and what I think uh, is actually true is that you do fit the mold because the mold for someone in your position is that you care, you have empathy. You have a great deal of passion for your work, and and that's the mold. And sometimes I think uh, that that our stereotypes get in the way of us embracing the people that are in our lives to actually help us and equip us and give us skills and tools to grow and and be good bystanders or be good prevention integrators or or whatever. We have this thing in our mind, and we think, oh, that's not going to be uh, that person doesn't fit that that mold. And really the truth is you maybe fit the mold better than most because of your deep personal connection with your work uh, and your strong passion and empathy for not just victims, but also all of us out here in bystander land realizing that that these sorts of things that happen in people's lives, they do have a butterfly effect or a ripple effect. And those mm-hmm. of us who call ourselves, quote, bystanders, you know, we, we can actually be victims also. Um, so, uh, Jeff, I think, uh, I think you do fit the mold. Well, thank you. Uh, it's, um, you know, I, I agree. Stereotypes sometimes uh, hinder us and they keep us from acting. We think bystander means that we have to come flying in with the cape and the big S on our chest and, you know, swoop in like Superman to save the day. But that's, that's really not the case. It's taking a moment in time and realizing that I don't want to accept things the way they are any longer. And that's what happened to me. Um, I, I just, it, you know, it took a personal um, tragedy and, and it is very tragic what happened to my daughter. It took a personal tragedy to, to turn that switch on. And I, I hope that it doesn't take that kind of tragedy to get everybody else um, 
impact that could be impacted by some tragedy to, to move, to act, to, to become a prevention integrator themselves. There's one of me on this, in this wing, uh, one prevention integrator, uh, in the 509th bomb wing. And this is a big wing with a lot of people and I can't do it by myself. So we need to all become prevention integrators in my mind. So I, Jeff, I appreciate that tons. I, when we talk about, you know, how do you practice every day to have resiliency? I imagine what you're doing, you, you came into this role because you recognized that you weren't dealing with and processing a huge tragedy in, in your life and in your daughter's life. So you educate, I would say, when we talk about, you know, what are you practicing on daily resiliency? You are socializing a, me- a message that has to be part of everybody's life. You don't have to stand by and do nothing. You can have the information, you can have the tools, and you can practice that daily. So, Yeah, I, I, that's, a, that's a great point. Uh, I didn't even talk about you know, the personal impact it had on me to, to the degree that it did. Um, because I, I was at a point in my life, I mean, I'll just, full disclosure here, I was going to, um, you know, I, I, I either live with this and deal with it, or I kill some SOB, go to prison for the rest of my life, and, and make the tragedy that happened to my daughter, in my mind at the time, right. Uh, like, taking him out would be, like, justice. Which I think... Just to just to comfort you a little bit, um, the, any dad, any parent listening to this story that's either been through something like this or thinking about going through something like this would undoubtedly have that same kind of internal turmoil um, and and wrestle with that kind of that kind of anger yeah. uh, and rage and learning how to practice some thing that will get you to a point where you can live well in the world is so powerful but i didn't want to i don't want to take away from that conversation but i think it's every who wouldn't feel that way what are you i mean you're absolutely right something had to stop you what you were doing so you could balance and come back and go now what do i actually do because that's not the realistic option and the repercussions of those actions would have Right. Um, tra- you know, transition into like affecting your family, your daughter, and, right? Uh, possibly even causing more shame and guilt on her because now right. you might be behind jail. Right. Yeah, that's that's a, and Kim, you're absolutely right. That the sort of the thought process went through my head was I, you know, in the moment I was wrestling, uh, Graham, like you said, I was really wrestling uh, with this thing in inside my brain, and and then some of the things that started to matter to me. The, uh, the most started to come to the forefront, like the the unborn granddaughter that was growing in my daughter's womb. Uh, what would she have to deal with from my action? So, and the fact that the way I was raised by my parents comes flooding in, like my dad sternly saying, two wrongs don't make a right, son. And, you know, and that seems so trivial in the moment when he's telling you that as a young boy, but then you fast forward to this moment, that potential secondary wrong could have led to so many tragedies for others. My wife would have been uh, without her spouse, and we've been married 35 years, and she would have spent the last 12 alone. 
Maybe. Maybe she would have found somebody better. I don't know. <laughs> with hair. <laughs> somebody with hair. <laughs> but, but, but that, that weighed into the resiliency, uh, the fact that I wanted to be, I mean, I was on the, I was on the brink of being your grandfather and I would have missed that. Uh, you know, those are a lot of things that just come flooding in. And if we don't pause and step away and give ourselves that moment to think, we react, and then the reaction can be catastrophic. So balance your thinking. Yeah. Balance your thinking. And also, I mean, with that, you're, you're sitting there and you're kind of thinking, what's most important to me right now? And, of course, in that moment, you know, you're using some mindfulness. You're stepping back and you're thinking, uh, what's going on around me? How's this going to affect everybody else? Uh, and being present with what you're feeling. Right. Being able to react in that manner. And I think, you know, as a prevention integrator, I think we get caught up. Sometimes humanity, as as Graham pointed out, this is a hum, very real human reaction to an event. Uh, but we get caught up with this me, me, me society that we kind of live in. And it's all about me and it's what I want, what I feel. And we sometimes don't take that pause to think about the imp- the implications for others. And oftentimes when we do, uh, we might, we might realize that, uh, our lives matter. And without, if we make a decision that, that detracts from that or takes away from that, we're going to impact a lot of people. Um, and so, but that Morgan, I really appreciate the question on resilience. I hadn't even thought about that until you just brought it up. But yeah, I dealt with a lot in, in that moment. And it really, I didn't think about it as me. It was all, you know, my response to what happened to my daughter. So my, my brain was consumed with her and her pain and her agony. And I just, as a dad, wanted to fix that. And so all these thoughts about how to fix it came flooding in. And none of which were right, because like I said at the beginning of this, everything I did in that moment was absolutely wrong. And now I know that and correct, can make corrections and help others not go down that road. And that's why I do what I do. You said something that stuck out to me. You said that you got into this line of work uh, as a means to be a better father and a better person. But I don't think necessarily that you were ever not a good father or a good person, more just like as you said, you didn't know anything until you educated yourself. Right. And so you can do a lot with your line of work, educating other people, um, such as like the effects of alcohol and how your body uh, responds to alcohol. And you had given a great analogy um, previously when we spoke about the roller coaster and oh, yeah. reaching up to um, uh, with your blood alcohol level being between 0.05 and 0.06. You want to tell everybody about that? Sure. Um so, so hold, just for my clarity, we're switching to booze now. That's we're, that's we're, what going we're going straight we're switching, into the booze. We're switching to booze. That's what we're. Grant perked up. I just got. Hey, let's talk now. We're, uh, so. we're, so, but 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 alcohol was involved yeah. in in the uh, in the event that happened to your daughter. Yeah. And yeah. so alcohol awareness and alcohol uh, consumption is a big part. And Kim's right. You you've got a great. Uh, a, a great analogy and a great way of talking about this yeah. that that I think helps us kind of balance um, responsible use uh, right. and and uh, you know not getting into like foolishness uh, right well like uh, you know one of the worst things that you can ever do uh, and victim victim advocates will tell you this one of the worst things you could ever do is vi- blame the victim everybody 
should have the right to go out and enjoy alcohol. It's a legal drug in this country, and it's not under any kind of restriction or whatever. And they and they should be able to go out and enjoy alcohol to whatever degree they choose. So provided they're twenty one, right? Provided they're twenty one, and they're restriction, and they're following the laws and that govern use in the community that they're in. You know, you can't. Some communities you can't open carry. So, you know, following the laws is, is you know, the most important thing. And drinking and driving, obviously, that's against the law. So just follow the law and you'll be safe there. Uh, but, but to Kim's point, you know, if I, I don't want to make, I, I really want to make sure that I, I'm clear not to make the distinction that the fact that my daughter had consumed a lot that night and was drunk, that it in some way implies that she was at fault. Absolutely not. I think yeah. it just, you know, I, yeah. it makes you vulnerable and it, it kind of yeah. can, you know, well, open up I, the door for other things if you're not overindulging and kind right. of being aware. Right. And, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what you were implying. I just wanted to make it clear in the podcast that, that that's not uh, anything that I want because I did that. That's what I did wrong. And I'm trying to correct that. So, so I want to make sure that everybody out there listening understands, but the thing that did spark in me and what it made me become uh, aware of is, is alcohol itself. I, again, I knew zero about violence prevention. I knew zero about alcohol. So when I started to pour myself into all this research, I saw I saw a, a interesting data point that oftentimes is not spoke of how imp- alcohol is so critically um, impacting other social issues. Um, the Air Force data suggests that in 33% of our suicides, which are um, pretty high uh, for the Air Force, as many of you may know, Alcohol is a contributing factor in 57% of our sexual assaults and domestic violence cases. Alcohol is a contributing factor. Um, DUIs, obviously, alcohol is the major contributing factor. And, and so you start to have this thought process, well, if we started to understand this drug alcohol and we started to really understand its impact on us, we would, we would by default, start to see a decrease in some of these other negative social behaviors. So that's why I really poured myself into the alcohol research and studying its impact on our decision-making. And so to, uh, to talk specifically about what Kim was referring to is, is really understanding that alcohol is a biphasic drug. Meaning, biphasic? Biphasic, yeah, it's pretty... What does well, that mean, bro? So, so it's biphasic means two phases. We there's oh, bi. Two, bi, Got it. yeah, yeah hey. Latin bi. Fi, <laughs> Got bi, it. Biphasic. So there's two phases of alcohol, right? If And we all should, if we don't know, we all should know that alcohol's a depressant, right? So no one would go up to the bartender and say, yo, bartender, give me a big old glass of depression, right? We wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't order nope. depression, right? We, so that's not what we, that's not what we're buying. We're not buying the second phase of alcohol. We're buying the first phase. But the problem we have, and this is what I've, this is what my studies in, into this drug have, have revealed to me was we chase the first phase. And the first phase is like euphoria. Right. The first that, phase is like, I'm the king of the world, right. Leo so, on Titanic or whatever. So when I talk to fraternities, sororities, athletes, 
uh, students at UCM back when I worked there. And even now to this day, and since 2012, the FTAC class, I, t- I speak to all of them. I ask them, what is it that you like about alcohol? Because that's, that's the key. So, so you out there listening to this podcast, fill in the blank for what phase one is to you. It, it, it's different for everyone. Uh, so what is it that you enjoy about alcohol? That's all phase one alcohol use. The tingle on my tongue. Yeah, or the I taste. Was say the same thing. <laughs> <Were you really? laughs> yes. Yes. It's like it like dances. I, you know, like, yeah, it's a tingle. It dances. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be the taste. It could you you fill in the blank because that's all phase one. But what the reality is, what the sh- studies show that the first phase is from zero consumption, and and Kim pointed this out that it ranges to point zero five to point zero six. Now everybody. If you don't know, you should know that 0.08 is what is defined as what? Do you guys know? The legal limit for up to the legal limit for driving. Right. Up to the legal, what legally defined as drunk. 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 Not just driving, but like drunk. drunk. So so in our minds, because we all know that number, we think that it's 0.08. Well, the reality is where the, where the, drug triggers to phase two is 0.05 to 0.06 and so hold on time out yeah what you're saying is the the law says 0.08 means you're drunk yeah you can't yeah but your body between 0.05 and 0.06 already switches you into the next phase so so 0.08 means you're drunk and you're in phase two which is depression correct you're a you're past the euphoric phase in 0.08. That's wow. why all those decisions that we make when we're there, after 0.06, we try to make a decision. It's not a rational decision because impairment has sunk in. And we got to get away from thinking about how we feel because it's not about feeling. It's about the biochemistry that's going on in the brain. Yeah. And that's what the, sh- the studies show. Uh, all of the research, and by the way, if you don't believe me, just Google alcohol research and you will be surprised at how many studies there are. And here's why there's two reasons. One, it's um, readily available drug. It's legal. So that's one. And two, there's no shortage of volunteers to participate in studies. Right. Right. Everybody wants to. Oh, free alcohol. I'll participate in that study. Right. So, so that's when you think about doing a study of a drug on a university campus and you're a PhD candidate, oh, I'm going to, and you're, you're thinking about uh, maybe you're a physiology student and maybe you're a social scientist or whatever. You're like, oh, I know an easy study. Boom. And you're going to have Boost. participants. Yeah, yeah. So it's been studied quite a bit. And that, that 0.05 to 0.06, what's interesting about what the data says on that is everybody, so all four of us in this room, we will be at 0.05, at 0.06, and we will be flipping into phase two all of us that's the consistent thing about the studies what's not the consistent is each of us will have gotten there on a different path does that make sense so for for example it may have taken me three standard drinks to get to 0.05 to 0.06 graham it may have taken you a little more uh, you may have had five to get to 0.05 to 0.06. Kim, you may have had three or four. And, and you know, uh, Morgan, I just, like, had a brain fart on your name. I was going to say. Okay. Uh, probably had seven or eight. <laughs> seven <laughs> so, or eight. So, yeah, that, that was my, that was probably what was good. So, the, the, that's what's really weird because you can't say, 
you know, there's no, there's no consistent number of like, how many drinks make me drunk? You, right. I can't tell anybody that. Like I've been asked that a lot. I can't tell you that because there's a lot of. That's the question everybody wants to know. Cause right. they want to know how far can they go without right. going over. Right. In the air force. I mean, we, you, you know, we get the little standard book that says what it does to a male versus a female yeah. and stuff, but that's still just. Right. Um, I'm not sure what the word is. I'm looking for Exactly. Yeah. Like it's, it's not for everybody. It's just right. kind of a, a guideline because there's so many variables and that, and that data and, and, uh, it's good. It's good to understand that it, it says on average, it, but that's all in the fine print, right? Mm-hmm. On average, you'll see this happen or that happen. But when they look at the studies, those are what they do is they take all the data sets and they put them into one uh, data element and that's called the, the the combined data set or whatever, or the congru or the what is that? Uh, I'm trying to think of the academic term for it, but it's any composite data. There you go, the composite data set. So they'll put that all in one place, and that 0.05 to 0.06 is a composite data set. But the number of drinks is different for every person, and the reason why that is is because each day we have different biochemistry going on. Everybody, yeah. right? I mean, we all know that. Some days you feel really uh, juiced up and ready to go and energetic, and some days you feel like you just went through, you know, a thunderstorm and you're dragging. Well, think about how those different days of just regular non-alcoholic consumption, if you were consuming, how they would be different, right? So, so they can't really say a number. that Those numbers that they always talk about are on average. And on for, so, for, the, for example, the Air Force had a 0013. You guys mm-hmm. probably remember hearing about that. Mm-hmm. And so the 0013 is an average, right? Zero drinks if you're uh, underage, which is not an average. That's a, that's a fact of law. Zero drinks if you're driving. That is another fact of law. So those two don't change. What changes is the one and the three. That's on average. Well, I know my formula. That's a formula on average. My formula is 0026. And I figured that out because I know what happens in my body. I can have two drinks an hour and no more than six. When I have six drinks total in an evening, I've tested my BAC multiple times and it's always at point zero. Uh, five to zero six. It's you were a, you were a willing participant in that study. Well, I mean, like, uh, how many times? Like, how many times did you really do so, that study? Like, yeah. hey, like I'm doing research here. Uh, at least three or four. Yeah. But <laughs> so leave me alone. I'm doing my research. That's why you stayed at so, the university for so long. Right. Right. So, <laughs> exactly. So I just want to. I just want to like get this clear in my head in terms of how in terms of how booze alcohol actually works. So uh, it's it's two phases. Uh, and 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 the first phase is like uh, you're you're kind of you're kind of climbing up a roller coaster, getting yes. to the top, and it yeah. and it's like oh man, this is awesome! I'm going to the top, and then and then you get up to the top, and you look out around you from the top, and it's amazing. Yep. you feel great up at the at the top, and and at the top you're like maybe at uh, zero two or zero three or something like that. And then you start you start racing down, and as you're racing down, uh, that's awesome. It's amazing, especially when you're coming down the top of the top of the roller coaster. And as you're coming down the top of the roller coaster, you're bumping up to like point four uh, or, or point zero four or whatever. Yeah. And then boom, you you're down at point zero eight. And now uh, everything you do after that, you're just you're just kind of chasing little bitty highs that yeah. that don't ever actually amount to 
anything as awesome as like the oh I'm going to the top yeah. and then down and then everything after that you're bummed you're depressed because you're not at the top of the mountain anymore or top right. of the roller coaster uh, you're in phase two and you're just chasing after whatever right, right? you're just chasing for something that you're not going to be able to get because we all know like the roller coaster there's only one high high Right, and you get one, and that's it. And everything after that is you there. Get off the ride. You got to get, get off, on. and you got to get back on. You <laughs> got to pay again. That's and exactly everything right. you do after that, chasing it, it doesn't. You're never going to get there. Exactly. That that the roller coaster analogy, I use that a lot. It's a great uh, example because what um, what New York uh, marketing professionals want us to do is consume as much as we possibly can. Right. Um, they sell. Uh, they market and sell liquor and alcohol uh, in volume, right? And they do it in such a brilliant way, like the more you buy, the cheaper it is, right? And the reality is if we took a 24-pack home and we drank that all, we would, we'd be in trouble. Uh, the reality is we would really be in trouble. We've well passed the, the um, positive impact of alcohol and we're only suffering the negative impact. One of my colleagues, uh, Jason Kilmer, he's a professor, uh, does a lot of research in this area out at the University of Washington. He coined a term called alcoholic myopia. It's where when we, before we start drinking, we have all of our ability to make decisions, cognitive ability, our thought processes, it's wide, it's beyond uh, peripheral. We can see beyond what's in front of us. And then we start to we start to narrow that focus down to three basic functions. And, and folks if listening out there, if you get to one of these three, you're in trouble. Okay. Um, when you're, when your body says I need to urinate, I need to eat and I need to sleep. And those are the only three things that you're responding to. You are in trouble with alcohol, but it's because the body is taking over and, and shutting you down. It's doing all the things that you're not willing to do. Uh, in the moment for you, it's, uh, it's shutting you down slowly and passing out and Katy Perry in one of her songs say, Oh, you got to go to this party because it's a blackout affair. That's dangerous language because blacking out is the last thing that happens before you die. That's just like a boxer getting punched in the head several times and then passing out. The body is saying, shut you the body is shutting that boxer down because he cannot take another punch another blow to the head and the same happens with a blackout affair in alcohol so i get that sometimes we just want to tie one on and have a good old time and and get stupid crazy drunk i get that but you still have to understand what this drug is doing and if you're trying to chase that singular high that comes with that one drop of the roller coaster. You're never going to get it in that night. You need to chill, take a nap, rest, get back on the ride the next day if you're ever going to experience it again. So, um, again, this is, this is me making myself aware of this because before I didn't know any of this. And the sad thing is we spend more money, time, energy, and effort on teaching someone how to drive a car than we do about how to use this, this dangerous yet legal drug known as alcohol. And, and again, I hope you guys out there listening realize I'm not, I'm an alcohol consumer. I, I will have drink and, um, you know, two or three a week. 
uh, maybe a couple more than that on the weekends. So it's not it's not the the drug alcohol. That's not the problem. It's how we use it, how we try to um, chase that high. That when we get into the second phase and we try to make decisions when we're incapable of making those decisions because alcohol is in control and we're not in control of it. Jeff, I, you so we talk about with calf pillars and with just physical and mental health, staying in tune and having self-awareness over your body and what's going on. You talk about how alcohol affects all of us differently. I mean, you have to know, am I eating healthy? Am I sleeping right? Like, these are all things that affect it. If I'm not sleeping well the night before, if I'm super stressed out, if I'm not taking care of my mental health or my physical health, those aren't good times to be over-consuming. And it doesn't mean that you can't, but right. you have to have that self-awareness. That's exactly right. Uh, that brings up a great point, uh, Morgan. When, when I was working with student-athletes at the University of Central Missouri, you know, they, uh, student-athletes like to drink. Everybody understands and knows that. But they also work out hard. They, they put their bodies in the best physical shape as they can to perform the, the sport that they're, they're pr- uh, training for. Um, research shows, again, studies show, and, I've, and I, trust me, folks, I am that kind of nerd. I read all of these studies. It's kind of sad. But uh, anyway, research will show that after you've worked out for two solid weeks to maybe prepare for a marathon or a competition coming up, you have one night of one episode of binge drinking five or more in a setting for a male. Doesn't, doesn't matter what your BAC is, just five or more. It completely erases those two weeks of physical fitness. Completely erases it. Puts you back to zero. So all the gains you've made physically return to zero after two hard weeks of working out. Graham's going to cry. That's a bummer, man. I <laughs> worked so hard for my gains. I know. I worked so hard for my gains and they're and gone. That's the type of thing that puts it into perspective. It sure does. Yeah. How yeah. hard are you working to take care of yourself and how willing are you to give up all that hard work and doesn't mean like moderation and everything. Right. It, yeah. We do not have to overconsume. Right. And, and, and yeah, the, that's a great point because you take that same athlete and one, maybe two beers, that's actually contributing <laughs> to their fitness and health because, you know, it's, it's not, well, I, some, some folks would say, well, contributing, I don't know if it's contributing, but it's the moderation that doesn't detract from all of the work. And it, it you know, uh, it may actually contribute because I don't know if you know the history of beer. It was, it, it was developed by monks to be portable food. So as a food source, originally. Praise God. <laughs> That's why you can afford Hey, praise the a little Lord. Shout God out. is good. A little shout out to the chaplains, the early Throw chaplains. Of the there. chaplain corps. So, Jeff, uh, just real quick, uh, we're, as we kind of wrap up here, um, if, you could, if you could tie together um, your experience um, and, and, and your work now, so what you went through with your family, and the work that you do now, if you, if you could tie it together uh, for everybody uh, in, in just a couple of sentences, uh, why it matters, why you care, and what you want us to take away in terms of, uh, in terms of the strength of the character of every individual in this wing, yeah. uh, what would you, uh, you want to say, what kind of values um, would you want us to embrace um, just as a final word? Well, thank you for asking me that. Um, it, it took 
it really took uh, this ha- this tragedy happening to my daughter for me to sort of uh, make that leap and, and pour myself into this work. And, and thank you for recognizing the passion that I have for it. Um, and what I'm hoping is that by sharing this story, it doesn't require that tragedy for everyone else out there. I'm hoping that we start to realize and see one another because as family is what I meant to, let me finish that statement, see one another as family because it had to happen to a family member or I was sort of numb to it. Right. But if we start to look at one another as brothers and sisters in the service, brothers and sisters in the air force. And, and I know because I do have the gray old, old gray hair guy in the room, I can all, you know, I can say this back in the day, you know, I know uh, the young folks out there are like hearing uh, fingernails on chalkboards when you hear back in the day. But this is the truth. Back in the day, our first name was whatever our first last name was. So it was Huffman was what my first name was. United States Air Force was on the other side of the uniform. That was my last name. So we all had the same last name. And we looked at each other as brothers and sisters. And, and skin color, religion, all of that crap that we yeah. sort of used to separate us, yeah. that didn't matter because we were one family, one familyhood, uh, family uh, neighborhood, and we took care of one another. And did we have mistakes? Do we make errors? Did we have these issues? Yes, we did. But we, w- we were there to stand each other up and support each other. I remember, just a quick story, uh, I remember one time I uh, mistakenly uh, turned off a power strip in my garage thinking I was saving electricity. I went home to visit on vacation. I came back, or leave is more appropriately known as today. Uh, I, I came back, and I didn't realize that my freezer was plugged into that power strip, so I had a whole freezer full of meat and food f- lost. You know what my brothers and sisters in my unit did? Brought over baskets of food from their freezers and helped me refill my freezer. Um, and I'm not saying that that kind of thing doesn't happen today, but that's the kind of love that the people in my unit had for me then. I mean, they're like, yeah, you know, you need, because I was just, and I didn't even ask for it. I just said, yeah, I can't believe how stupid I was. And I told the story. And that night, when I went home, I was sitting around and knock on the door. There's a basket of frozen food. People had thrown in hamburger and steaks and stuff from their freezers and re- replenished mine. And that seems kind of trivial in the grand scheme of things, but that's caring for one another. That's showing that, that we love each other. And if we have that level of caring, then we won't allow the stuff that happens now to continue to happen. We will be appalled by it. We will want to stop it. Um, yeah, uh, General Goldfein put out a uh, notice that uh, our number one enemy right now to the Air Force is suicide. And we need to combat that enemy at whatever cost. With love. With love. Exactly. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. E familia. One love, one Air Force. Podcast out. Got the jams, got the soul, pour another glass of that